This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. If you could uh, turn or keep open Exodus chapter 1 and 2, that's page 43. I'm going to be talking about chapter 1 as well as chapter 2, so it'd be great for you to have chapter 1 open in front of you. You can get the Pew Bibles open, it's page 43, as I said. And uh, it's great to be back here after a couple of weeks away, and I don't know what you've been doing with your time off, if you've had any. I know some people have travelled far distances, and um, I know some people are here on holidays themselves. It's great to have you here, but I confess that uh, during my holiday I did watch a bit of Netflix. And one of the documentaries that caught my eye was about an event called the Fire Festival. That's the F-Y-R-E Festival. I don't know if you know anything about the Fire Festival. Um, I knew nothing about it, but it probably says a lot about you and I that we didn't know anything about it because it was intended to be really cool. And uh, no offence, but you weren't the target market, neither was I. It was an event planned by a New York hyper-hip tech company called Fire who had been marketing a special credit card for 20-somethings in New York. And the specialness of this credit card was that it was sort of made of metal. That was about all it was. It just looked good. They claimed that they had bought an island in the Bahamas, uh, the island that Pablo Escobar used to use. It was his, his old island. And then they were marketing uh, a, a huge festival that they were holding on this island. And they sent a video around. They got a video uh, on this alleged island that showed a bunch of supermodels and buff guys having a great time on this island wearing swimming costumes. And so the Fire Festival was then marketed through social media influencers like Kendall Jenner, who you know is, of course, a Kardashian, right? And Bella Hadid, who, of course, you know is a supermodel. You knew that, right? And it was marketed to millennials then as the place that you'd want to be, the place to be, where all the cool people would be. A luxury-style party, the party of the century, the party of even the millennials. That kind of language was used. Customers were promised accommodation in, I quote, modern, eco-friendly, because it has to be kind of morally good, eco-friendly geodesic domes and meals cooked by celebrity chefs. And on the basis of this campaign, they sold thousands of tickets, some 5,000 tickets for 1,500 American dollars each. Uh, the luxury tickets were going to be going for 12,000 American dollars each. Only the reality turned out to be very different. The accommodation was in, literally, refugee camp tents. They got the accommodation from geodesic domes, right? They actually got them as leftover hurricane uh, refugee shelters, and they had blow-up mattresses inside. That was what you were going to be sleeping on. There was actually hardly any food. There were not enough beds to go around, and so when people got there, it was sort of free-for-all to see who could actually get a bed for the night, and uh, in the dark, because the lighting hadn't been done. The food, uh, well, there was one uh, Twitter uh, tweet that went round with a photograph of some of the food, which was a piece of toast with cheese on it, served in a styrofoam box 
which I don't know any celebrity chef that's made that uh, as yet. Most of the musicians on the list had cancelled, and so the reason for having the um, the weekend, the festival, had actually disappeared, evaporated. No supermodels could be seen anywhere. It was more like Lord of the Flies than anything else. It was a com- it, it's one of those shows that just makes your stomach churn as you see it happening. It was a complete disaster, and the organiser was charged with fraud and sent to prison for six years. He overpromised. He underdelivered. Is this what following God is like then? God has promised, but has He delivered? Is this what the Christian life feels like? Now, the people of Israel would certainly have grounds to think at the beginning of the book of Exodus that God had under-delivered on his promises. You might remember that back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 12 and then at 15, God had made these extraordinary promises to Abraham. And the promises were, you might remember, the promised land, the promise of a great land, the promises that Abraham would be the father of a great people, and the promise of a great blessing. And despite everything, including Abraham's great age and the great age of his wife, Sarah, God had given them a son and put him in the promised land, the land of Canaan. But fast forward a few generations, you've got Abraham's son, Isaac, then his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and then Jacob's sons. There was a famine in the land, and the family of Abraham's descendants had ended up in Egypt That's how the book of Genesis closes. But down the years, they had never returned home and, in fact, conducted quite a successful breeding program while they were in Egypt. And Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, have a look there, it tells us that they were doing pretty well on the population growth count. It says they were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So at least part of God's promises seemed to be coming to pass. But there was a bit of a problem with this because the friendly relations that they'd had with Pharaoh didn't last. A new king had come into power and he didn't like the immigrants. This is a familiar story, isn't it? Uh, You can imagine uh, that uh, Pharaoh was saying, look, we're being overrun by these immigrant peoples. We don't like them very much. Maybe we could build a wall to keep them out. Maybe he thought about that. And he was quite paranoid that they would soon outnumber his own people. And they were soon doing exactly what God had commanded them to do. They were filling the earth. So Pharaoh tries three solutions to keep control of God's people. The first one is that he enslaves them and makes them build his cities. He puts them to work. He gets rid of all their social privileges. He puts them to work harder and harder in the hot Egyptian sun. He makes them the oppressed underclass. But still, though he flogs them, he tries to work them into the ground. The Israelites are not too exhausted to impregnate their wives. And the more oppressed they are, the harder they work, the harder Pharaoh flogs them, the more they grow in numbers. So secondly, he tries a more pernicious, a more nasty strategy. He calls in the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. He thinks that he can intimidate these Hebrew women. He tells them, okay, when a Hebrew woman gives birth, 
check the gender. That's the first thing you do once you've got the baby breathing. You check the gender. If it's a boy, kill it. Now, these midwives are the unexpected heroes of this tale. Notice how the Bible gives them names and doesn't name anyone else, even Pharaoh. We're actually to this day unsure about which Pharaoh he is, but we know the names of Shipra and Pua thousands of years later, these midwives who do exactly what God would have them do. You see, they were commanded to do something vile, outrageous, to participate in infanticide and genocide. Can you imagine the pressure they were under to conform? They stood in front of a tyrant king. If there was a more important and powerful man in the world at that time, it would be hard to think who it was. They must have been afraid. And surely they said to themselves, or at least the thought might have run through their heads, Look, if we do this horrible thing, at least we'll be able to say, I was only following what? Orders, right? We've heard that in our own day. I was only following orders. But what do they do? What does verse 17 tell us? The midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the boys live. They did not fear Pharaoh, though Pharaoh was terrifying. They feared God, and they knew that the murder of babies is abhorrent to him. So they did not do it and hang the consequences. They were not about to obey a man over God. Do you fear God as these midwives did? Which means, when it comes down to it, will you live as God has called you to live or as the pharaohs of our day are calling you to live? These women were ready to break the express command of the king of Egypt and then lie to him about that, which we see later in the story, because what he had commanded them to do was evil. Now, there's plenty of examples in history of ordinary people like you and me doing terrible evil at the command of rulers and dictators. Ordinary people in Rwanda, many of them churchgoers, many of them Anglican churchgoers, just like us, picked up machetes and hacked their neighbours to death. Not a couple of them, lots of them. Without decent middle-class church-attending folks like us, doing appalling things and overlooking appalling things and just following orders, the Nazis could not have exterminated six million Jews. Now, I think the lessons of moments like this is that that something is legalised or that something is socially acceptable doesn't make it right. In fact, social respectability and acceptability are powerful tools to get ordinary people like us to do evil or to overlook it. And that's a thought that haunts me if I'm honest with myself. Do I really fear God over the other things that I fear? Do I really fear God more than I fear being made a social pariah? Do I really fear God more than I fear being thought of as a nasty person by respectable people, being thought of as retrograde and out of touch and out of step? Do I really fear God more than I fear that? 
And these are nothing like standing before the king of Egypt and defying him and his express command. And yet those fears can control me. Shifra and Pua had not just courage, but faith, which is far more powerful. They had profound trust in the promises of God, even when they were living in the gap between God's promises and God's salvation. And so they asked, what would God have us do, even if it means disaster for us? Is that a question you ask yourself? And so is the word of God your first point of reference? Or is it the word of human beings? Who do you fear more? And if I may be frank, if I'm completely honest, I think we at St Mark's, if I'm to generalise, I've seen it again and again. We tremble at the word of man and we treat the word of God as kind of nice but optional. We're more afraid very often, of losing social respectability than we are of the God who made heaven and earth. Would we have the courage and the faith to break an evil law in the name of God, to do what is right? Oh, but we may say, what is God doing anyway? Look, we've been led out here to an island in the middle of nowhere for a party that hasn't happened, haven't we? Hasn't he overpromised and underdelivered? But the midwives know that this isn't the case. They experience the hand of God in the day-to-day. They see him fulfilling his promises in the birth rate of Israel. They know that God is at work. And they know something else, that the Lord God of Israel works out his promises in unexpected ways through unlikely people. The Lord God of Israel, the Lord God of Jesus Christ, works out his promises in unexpected ways through unlikely people. It's amazing in the Bible how often we see this happening. It's almost always the case. It's, all, it's a book full of younger sons rather than older sons who get the promises of God and who understand God. It's a book full of people who really are the outsiders and the outcasts, the people who aren't powerful, who get, get it, through whom God works. He uses unexpected people, faithful women in particular, are more prominent in God's plan than supposedly powerful men. We think of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, Miriam, who's the big sister of Moses, not mentioned by name in this story, but appears in chapter 2. We think of Deborah, the judge, and Huldah, the prophet, and Mary, of course, whose story we read, and the women at the tomb of Jesus. God does not always or even often work out his promises in the ways that we can see them. And yet... Don't be fooled into thinking he's not at work. When I think about the way in which Western culture with all its wealth and power and privilege is abandoning God at a furious rate, and I think, oh my goodness, the the place in the world where people are most wealthy and educated and sophisticated and know stuff, well, they're not becoming Christian. Clearly, well, what is God doing? And I forget that it's in the poor parts of the world that people are turning to God in their, in their thousands. And there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are people in Australia. There are more Christians in Malaysia. By far than there are here. And on and on it goes. 
God is at work through in unexpected ways, through who we think are unlikely people. And this is what happens in the next episode of our story. Pharaoh, he's got a new tactic, right? He's going to have to bypass the Hebrew women because they're not telling him the truth. They've been saying to him, you know, Hebrew women, they're very strong. They give birth before we can get there. So we can't get to the boys. We can't, we, we, we're just not getting there. So they kind of deceive him and he realizes it's not working. So he tries a new tactic. He's going to get his people, his henchmen to bypass the midwives and they're going to get any Hebrew baby born, born uh, baby boy born and they're going to chuck him into the Nile where, well, he'll either drown or be eaten. And this is in- introduces for us a new character into the story, Moses. Of course, everyone reading this story, the first readers would have known already the end of the story, how Moses had led his people out of Egypt and wrote down the laws of God. They knew that this baby, the baby that would be called Moses, would lead to the salvation by God of his people. Oh, his mother had tried to hide him from the death squads, but he'd become a big, healthy boy, and of course he'd been a bit noisy, we assume, and this had become impossible, and so she'd come up with another crafty strategy, the basket. The basket of papyrus reeds. Actually, the, the Hebrew word for basket is the same word as the word for ark that we read back in the story of Noah. And just like the ark, she plasters it, makes it waterproof with bitumen and pitch just exactly in the same way. If you think about it, mum is doing exactly what Pharaoh commanded. She's throwing her son into the Nile, after all. But you wonder, what was she thinking? What was going to happen? Would a crocodile come across the baby? Would the baby simply starve or drown or float away who knows where? We don't know what she was thinking. Only she cast her precious baby into God's hands, She made a little ark because she knew that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is the God who saves, the God who is true to his promises. Now, sometimes we have to do the same. There are many circumstances in life in which we don't know what the outcome will be. We can't see what God will have in store. We just have to trust him and do what is right. Maybe that's how it is in your workplace, in your professional life at the moment. Or maybe that's how it is in your relationship world at the moment, in your personal family life. Maybe there's a situation in which you just can't see what the fair and just outcome is or in which you feel things have got beyond your control, in which you feel overwhelmed, the crisis of a family breakdown or a toxic workplace. Moses' mum does not give in or try and seize control of the situation. She does not do the wrong thing, which would be the legal thing, to hand her boy over to Pharaoh. Instead, she literally hands over her precious child to the Lord God. And she sends Miriam down to watch what will happen. And you can imagine the scene, Miriam's there by the banks of the Nile watching this baby in a basket, wondering what's going to happen. And then Pharaoh's daughter, the princess and her entourage, come down for a a wash, for a swim, and discover the baby. And immediately the princess of Egypt, Pharaoh's daughter, recognises that this is one of the boys that her father is trying to kill. But this woman is not persuaded by her father's policy 
And she's certainly not obedient to it. She's not going to be easily pushed around. And she's certainly not without compassion. She has pity on the baby that she's seen. And that's when Moses' sister very helpfully steps in with a, a, a very nice suggestion. Wouldn't a wet nurse be a good idea for the baby? What, you know, I, I just happen to know a, a Hebrew woman who can fit the bill. Moses' mother. And this convinces the princess of Egypt. And finally, uh, over the course of a, cu- a couple of years, this child ends up being adopted as the princess's son, whom she gives the name Moses to. We have to smile a bit here, I think, because Pharaoh's attempt to kill off all the baby boys of Israel not only fails, but it leads to a Hebrew boy becoming one of his own household. And this Hebrew boy is destined to be the one who leads the slave people to a great victory over Pharaoh himself. You have to marvel at the brilliance of God at putting together this this plan. God's like like an effective martial arts combatant, isn't he? He uses the strength of his opponent against him to defeat him. The evil of Pharaoh, the plan of Pharaoh to do something diabolical, sows the seeds of his own failure. He could not outsmart or outpower the Lord God, even though all God was using was the faith of some lowly women. This is good news for us where we are. To be a Christian is to live in that gap, isn't it? The gap between God's promises and their fulfilment. And in that gap, we can experience pain, doubt, disappointment. We can set out on the journey full of expectations And yet life in the middle can really hurt. And people have said to me, I've I've met with people who've said to me, what, what, I've followed you, I've followed God. Why is he bringing me to this situation? Why has this happened? Why am I in the middle of this extraordinary mess? He seems so distant and quiet. But God is not at all like the fire festival promoters, over-promising but under-delivering. God is at work, though we may not see it at the time. All around us, persistently, all the time, even in a tyrant like Pharaoh, he is at work to bring about his plan. And so, what does that mean for us? It means for you and I, in the midst of this experience, in the middle of things, in the gap, be like the heroic and faithful women of this story. Be like Shipra and Pua. I just want to say their names since the Bible wants us to remember their names specifically. We need to say them. Shipra and Pua. Be like them and like Moses' mother. The answer to our experience of pain and confusion and bewilderment is to fear God as they did. The answer to our experience of being challenged to follow another authority, is to fear God above all. Your call and my call is not to be socially respectable or acceptable. It's not to be nice. Oh man, I love to be nice. The call on my life is not to be nice. The call on my life is to fear God 
and do what is right. And to remember that God uses the small things of this world, the unspectacular, the foolish, the poor, to do his work. As Paul says in Romans 8, one of the extraordinary passages of the New Testament, one of the high points, he says, all things work together for good for those who love God. God works out his purposes, though we may not see him doing it at the time. He is at work to answer his promises. He works together for good for those who love him. And Paul says, if God is for us then, who, even Pharaoh, can possibly be against us? Let's pray. Our Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we ask for the faith of the midwives of the Hebrews. We ask for their understanding that it is what we need to do is to fear God above all and to do what is right and to know that you are at work even in the small and insignificant things of this world and that you never fail to deliver on your promises. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.